Welcome to the Innovation and Diffusion podcast. I'm Rebecca Gozen, a research economist at the Program on Innovation and Diffusion at the London School of Economics. And I'm John Van Rienen, and I'm a professor here at the London School of Economics too. And we're very excited today to have Heidi Williams, who is going to be talking to us about her work and her research. And on a personal note, I'd just like to say, you know, I'm so excited to have Heidi here. We used to be colleagues when we were at MIT together. And Heidi is not only just a brilliant researcher in innovation economics, she's also a great institution builder and has been running a uh, fantastic program at the uh, NBR Summer Institute, all on innovation for young scholars. So uh, hats off to Heidi. Yes, our guest of honor is Heidi Williams. Welcome, Heidi. How are you feeling? Are you ready for the episode? I uh, guess well, it's great to be here. And, uh, you know, it says a lot about when I, when I run a summer school for students, you know, John is, you know, first on the list of who I want to have come teach. So it's, it's great to get a chance to be here. <laughs> That's great. We're going to ask you really hard questions. <laughs> Let me tell um, our audience um, our plan for today. So we will first talk about your research interests, and then we will go into some very controversial topics related to medical companies, or we can call it maybe medicine and the patent system. And then we will go into some cheesy questions, such as like, what you do, what do you do when there is a problem within a research team, like if someone is free riding or shirking, or, you know, even a clash between co-authors, you know, like we have really nice cheesy questions that will, um, I think, help young academics. So let me introduce you to our audience as well. I mean, John already introduced you, but um, Heidi Williams is a professor of economics at Dartmouth College and a director of science policy at the Institute of Progress, which is a nonpartisan uh, think tank in DC. And her research focuses on medicine, science and innovation. So could you tell us, but why are you interested in uh, medicine, science, and innovation? What drives you to these topics? Yes, yeah, so I um, I remember when I first started learning about what's driven improvements in human health over time. There's quite a consensus among physicians as well as economists and other people that have studied the topic that the reason why we're living longer today um, relative to how long we lived, you know, say in 1970, is because we've had dramatic improvements in medical technology. So earlier, uh, earlier in time, so pre-1970, there were a lot of really important improvements in public health. And that's also kind of a very interesting thing to understand. But if you look post-1970, you know, basically we're saving babies that are born at very low birth weights and allowing them to leave live essentially, you know, normal, healthy lives, or we're saving people that have heart attacks, that that used to be a death sentence, and now it really isn't. And we're also preventing a lot of heart attacks that wouldn't have happened by giving out medications that are reducing blood pressure and reducing cholesterol. And so I got very interested in the idea that, um, you know, economists like Bill Nordhaus have kind of argued that the gains, if you value kind of the gains in life expectancy and gains in the health status, those the magnitude of how much we value those gains in health looks on the order of magnitude the same as improvements in GDP over recent decades. And so that, to me, kind of said, oh, well, we should really want to understand, you know, what can we do to encourage more technological progress in healthcare if we think that technologies are really what's behind this, like, dramatic improvement in human well-being. And then I was kind of surprised to learn uh, as a college undergraduate that most health economists study health insurance, which is interesting and important and definitely part of access to technologies, but that actually very few health economists were studying kind of where medical innovations came from and kind of this intersection between innovation economics and, and health economics. And so I was very interested in that as a jumping off point for trying to understand a lot of what I now see as kind of the classic questions in the economics of innovation in a context where you can actually do a lot to trace out not just innovation in terms of counts of patents or counts of scientific publications, but actually trace that out to say, are patients getting access to new drugs and how much are those new drugs benefiting patients? And really trying to get closer to understanding the social welfare impacts of how much we would benefit by having better innovation policies. Angus Deaton and, and Anne Case have this work on deaths of despair, showing that there's been a stalling of improvements of life expectancy in the US. And that's also happening actually in England as well. But later, do you have a view on why that might be despite the continued advances in medical science? 
You know, it's interesting. That's such an important agenda. And I know there's been a lot of back and forth about kind of the drivers in different areas. You know, definitely one thing that they, some of their work has, has looked at is um, things like the opioid epidemic, which is kind of closer to my interests in the sense that, you know, we can think of medical technologies and new drugs and kind of all of their benefits. But of course, we also have medical technologies that are developed that end up getting misused. And so, you know, part of appropriate technology diffusion is trying to think about, you know, how do we provide guidance or nudges or guardrails that basically make it so that technologies are used in the cases where they're appropriate and kind of not get misused in cases where they're inappropriate. And so I think that there's a lot of worthwhile work uh, to be done kind of um, doing a more careful deep dive on kind of trying to understand cases where we've used those guardrails in the past. This also comes up actually in the research context, not just in the diffusion of new inventions. So, you know, when the Human Genome Project happened. We were trying to understand, you know, the sequence of of the DNA that underlies all of us. And people were very concerned about would that data that came up through the Human Genome Project be misused in some way. You know, there were privacy concerns, you know, how do we think about genetic engineering? Like, you know, what kind of technologies is this going to enable? And so alongside the sequencing effort, which is this basic science effort, the National Institutes of Health and the Wellcome Trust and others put in place this very carefully and thoughtfully curated ethical, legal, social implications. So LC kind of program alongside the Human Genome Project um, to basically try to think through in real time, how do we want to be putting on guardrails to sort of manage and make sure that the technology evolves in an appropriate direction. And so um, it's been interesting to see now current day, there's kind of more interest in going back to try to better understand how well did those mechanisms work? Like, should we be doing more of those in certain contexts? And I think the opioids case and the deaths of despair is such an emblematic example of where we need those not just on the research side, but also on the use side. And so it's not my area of specialization, but it is something that I feel like is often underappreciated in discussions about about technologies is, you know, where and when do we put in um, kind of policies to try to guide the technologies to be used in the most um, socially appropriate way. Yeah, and very relevant for debates on artificial intelligence and what Very we're much so. grappling yes. with as well. Yep. I was actually going to ask you about, I mean, since we started talking about the Human Genome Project and um, and since you work on uh, medicine a lot, I think, I think it requires a lot of technical knowledge, right? So for instance, a study related to cancer drugs would require a good amount of institutional background. I mean, or I can say, I mean, it's a, it has its own jargon, right? The medicine. So I want to ask you, like, how did you allocate your time to learn about these technical details? Did you do something when you were a uh, student, for instance, or did you have an opportunity uh, to have a more interdisciplinary collaboration that helped you in that process? Yeah, great question. Um, so I have gotten a lot of my research ideas from reading history of science or history of medicines books where people that are not economists are kind of articulating a version of what they think happened and kind of what important events played out that shaped the outcomes that we now understand today. And so in the case of the Human Genome Project, which was something I studied during my dissertation, there were two books. One of them was the Sloan Foundation funded someone to follow around Craig Venter, who was uh, starting this private firm, Solera, that was going to seek the genome. And then John Sulston and Georgina Ferry kind of chronicled uh, their efforts in the UK to kind of do the public sequencing effort and, and their leadership role in that. And what I loved was reading the two books side by side because they were basically chronicling the same event, but from two very different perspectives. It ended up just being very clear that, you know, Solera was frustrated that they weren't able to get patents. And so they had to do this workaround. And the Human Genome Project was frustrated that Solera wasn't just putting its data in the public domain. And kind of hearing both of those uh, narratives basically let me see like, oh, actually, like the challenges and the frustration of both sides is the same thing and actually provided a nice natural experiment to ask when sequenced human genomic data wasn't freely available, how did that impact subsequent medical process progress? Um, but I'm myself not a scientist by training. So I read these books and kind of recognized that there was an opportunity to do a study. But I don't, I just, I've never taken advanced science. I definitely wasn't a science major. And so basically, rather than going back and getting like an, another undergraduate degree in science or something, I just kind of looked for opportunities to, A, once I understood there was a project I want to do, kind of go back to try to be systematic about filling in my understanding so that I could do kind of a better job of that. So I was lucky when I was in graduate school, um, Claudia Golden was actually also interested in, in genomics. So she and I sat in on an undergraduate biology class uh, during one of my last years of graduate school, which um, she's an economic historian. That's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. And she was interested in it for personal reasons, but that was like a great experience. 
experience. But then most of it, of course, is self-taught because you're not going to get exactly what you need out of an interlevel class. But the standard I've always tried to hold myself to is that I should feel comfortable presenting this paper in front of scientists in the specialty that I'm trying to study. And that's something I've really imparted to my students too. So I was really lucky that when I was a junior faculty at MIT, I went over and presented my dissertation work at the Broad Institute, which is one of the main um, genome sequencing centers. Or you know, in another paper that I had on cancer, I went and presented it at the Koch Cancer Institute at MIT. And just kind of looking for opportunities to kind of engage with scientists, we ask different questions than they do. At the Broad, I remember um, my one of my PhD advisors, David Cutler, uh, very kindly introduced me to Eric Lander, who, um, if you don't know him, he's kind of a polymath type that was doing math and then economics and then ended up doing biology and then was running the Broad Institute for a long time. And he just immediately got what I was doing and kind of he could explain it in different language to some other people around the road. You know, it's not that the average scientist is maybe going to be interested in talking with me, but I feel like if you can find one or two scientists that are kind of on board enough to understand what you're doing and can serve in that translational role, um, it allowed me to get feedback from a much broader group of scientists and kind of make sure that the work I was doing was kind of being respectful of the data that I was using and how I was using it, how I was measuring things and things that when I presented an economic seminar, as smart as you two are, you're not going to give me feedback on whether I'm appropriately linking, you know, these two genetic data sets that you've never heard of, right? And so, but it's kind of on me to make sure that I'm doing right by the yeah. data that I'm using that the scientists are more familiar with. Your your passion and interest actually uh, like drives you to these uh, topics. It's, it's really nice to hear these things. I want to go into to the research questions a bit. So, and I think this is a very important topic because I think in our families or relatives or even among our friends, um, we have people who had cancer, for instance, and we tend to think that finding a solution, for instance, to cancer is extremely hard. And that's why we don't have a cure or a preventative, for instance, drug for a cancer yet. And is this really the case? Like, is this, I mean, we don't have a cure for that yet because, um, I mean, it's hard. Or do we see that firms avoid investing in long-term research because of our maybe policies? Is there an like incentive problem in the economy, or actually maybe an unintentional disincentive driving innovation away from finding preventative cancer solutions, for instance. What does your research say about these things? So this is one of the hardest um, topics to talk about with scientists, because um, I want to be respectful of, you know, there are... I. I understand from their perspective, there are hard and easy problems. And I'm not trying to say that everything is kind of equally easy, right? But I feel like as economists, we kind of come in and we think, well, one reason that some problems are hard is because no one's worked on them before. And so we kind of haven't really laid the groundwork that reduces the cost for the next person to make the next advance. I'm always just trying to encourage people to be open-minded and to say, you know, rather than seeing uh, the problem landscape is fixed, that some problems are difficult and some aren't, and we are kind of naturally going to migrate away from the hard problems, that can we look at whether the policies and institutions and incentives that we have are kind of systematically biasing people away from making investments in certain areas? And when we've had opportunities that have made it easier to make those investments, you know, what has been the impact on how much people are willing to do investments and how many technologies get developed. I see a lot of hints in different contexts that the magnitude of those responses is actually quite large, suggesting that policy can really make a difference. Because this idea that some science is just hard and you know we're never going to make progress is also just a very pessimistic view. It's kind of saying, well, we can never make progress in those areas because it's just inherently difficult. During COVID, that was a lot of the discussion around, you know, people were like, well, we want to get a vaccine very quickly. And people were like, well, we can look historically and the time lags were, you know, decades to get vaccines and definitely not before, you know, seven years. But then in practice, you know, we put in place policies that paid people money and kind of made it in their interest to do things more quickly. And actually, we got a vaccine, like a short order relative to the historical yeah. precedents. And, and so, not just one, several. <laughs> not just one, several. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Um, as you said, I did one particular study that did a deep dive of this for cancer. And so cancer is a complicated topic. Um, one thing that's nice about cancer is that it's very natural to think of designing essentially a matrix to try to measure where people could have been doing research, where they were actually allocating research investments, and where we think that they 
could have been investing but weren't and kind of looking for systematic patterns in that. There's about 200 different cancer types, where if you think of a cancer type as like localized breast cancer, so you have a tumor in your breast versus metastatic brain cancer, where you have a a tumor that started in your brain, but then it's spread to other parts of your body. And so cancer patients tend to get categorized by what type of cancer they have that really is an important factor guiding their treatments. And so you can kind of look at a matrix of cancer stage and organs and kind of say, where do we get a lot of investment? Well, it turns out we get a lot of investment in like late stage breast cancer and late stage colorectal cancer. And you can say, well, maybe that's because those are easier areas or there's more patients with those diseases. So there's just more demand for those treatments. And you can try to do kind of an accounting exercise to say, are those factors which we can measure explaining why we get more research on some cancers and not others? And when when I did that with my co-authors, what we saw is that there were kind of a lot of unexplained gaps. So kind of areas where it looks like there's a lot of patient demand, um, but that we're kind of not getting as much innovation as you would expect. And so you could say, well, those are just hard scientific areas. But what we tried to look at is that when you want to develop a new drug, um, you need to put that um, drug through clinical trials to show the regulator that the drug is safe and effective. And it turns out those clinical trials are longer if it takes longer for patients to um, show improvement on the outcomes that you're measuring. So normally for cancer trials, you have to show that the drug improves survival. So you give patients a drug, a treatment and control group, you wait to see does the treatment group live longer. And so if you're looking at very late stage patients that die very quickly, you're going to have statistical precision to say that there's a difference in the mortality between the treatment and control group relatively quickly. Whereas if you're looking at these like you know, early stage breast cancer patients, they're going to live another 10 or 12 years for sure. You're going to, it's going to require a long time to be able to have the statistical power to say that this drug improves survival for early stage breast cancer patients. And so one thing that's very nice about this setting is that we kind of know, firms know, the economy knows, um, which um, diseases, which types of cancer are going to have longer trials, because it's ones where the patients are going to live longer in the absence of treatment. And so what we did is we kind of tried to parameterize this matrix by saying, can we look at whether there's systematically less investment in the areas where firms in the economy know that these are going to require very long trials? And that looked like it was a very important effect. That on its own is not really clear what you do with that fact, because these trials that are long, there's lots of reasons why even society-wide, we might want less investment in those drugs. You know, the simplest example is to say, if I develop a drug that's going to be ready tomorrow, I'm pretty sure that I'm matching that with patient demand. But if I'm going to invest in a drug that we're not going to finish the trials for 12 years, it's possible, but by the time I finish the trial, this disease will have been eradicated or there'll be such, you know, a much better drug available. So like just technological progress is going to mean that there's some socially lower returns to longer term research also. What we tried to do in a series of case studies is to basically say, we think that there's a systematic bias where private firms are, are underinvesting in these longer trials. And we tried to quantify what's the welfare cost of that. And it looked pretty large. Think about it, like where does the patent system fall in this process? So, so we know that a patent is given for twenty years or so, and when it, if a clinical trial takes, let's say, I don't know, fifteen years, then it might be really a disincentive for these firms to maybe invest in those long-term clinical trials. Do we have a problem with the patent system that might be causing, as I said, I mean, unintentional a disincentive for these firms? Yes, we had started this project originally because we thought that patents might be a really important part of this. For various reasons, legally, you need to file your patent before you start clinical trials because you're essentially disclosing your candidate drug in the process of like advertising the trial. And so you can't have it in the public domain for too long, otherwise you lose your ability to patent. And so, um, yeah, like you said, if if in the simplest thought experiment, if patents last 20 years and some clinical trials take two years and some take 15 years, we're implicitly as a society providing less patent protection to the tr- drugs that have 15-year trials, which is ironic, particularly given that those trials are more expensive. So you might think all else equal, we'd want to give more patent protection to those drugs rather than less. But in fact, you know, we're really only giving them five years of market protection once the drug is on the market. It is quite possible, I think, that patents are an important part of this. I think what became clear in the context of doing the research project was that it's really actually quite hard to distinguish patents as a driver of this from other reasons why private firms may just not have it be in their interest to fund these long trials. 
in the corporate finance literature, people often talk about what's called corporate short-termism, which is just that private firms seem to use a higher discount rate. So they seem to kind of value money sooner relative to money later at a different Mm -hmm. rate than the public sector does. And so there's a lot of evidence in other contexts that actually that kind of corporate short-termism is real. And that would basically show up in almost the same way as the patent system distortion, because it would mean that there's a gap between which trials private firms want to run and which trials the public sector wants to run. Um, and that would could be driven either by patents or by kind of these other you know distortions in the financing market or other things. In the end, we weren't really able to make a strong case that patents were responsible for the distortion we were measuring. But regardless of whether it's patents or not, basically we were able to quantify what would the social welfare gains be from uh, technologies that you could invest in that would just let us have shorter clinical trials. The another source of hate mail that I get from scientists and and, and doctors. Um, there's a economists get to talk about things at a very high level. So we say like, what if there's a technology you can invest in that let you have shorter clinical trials? That sounds like a great idea. But then when you translate down into medical speak, what what I'm talking about are, are these things called surrogate endpoints. So the idea is that rather than showing that your drug improves survival, why don't we show that the drug improves some intermediate outcome that's observed more quickly than you observe survival that we know is correlated with changes in survival? And so a good version of this is for cancer, there's kind of long been evidence for blood and and, um, and bone marrow cancers that changes in the level of cancer in your blood are a really good marker that your mortality will improve later. And so if you have leukemia and you take a drug and the amount of leukemia in your blood goes down, we kind of know that that's associated with your um, life expectancy is increasing. So that's a good circuit endpoint. There's lots of controversial circuit endpoints where you take a drug and something changes in your body and it's not at all clear that that's associated with better health outcomes. And so certain endpoints are very controversial because private firms often ask to use them in a way that people might perceive the evidence base is kind of not there to support that the drug is actually doing something that's beneficial for human health. And so essentially, the the whole idea of surrogate endpoints is just sufficiently controversial that very little happens in that space because it's just seen as being very pro-industry to suggest that we should like think more about surrogates. What I find very interesting is that where do surrogates come from? The main surrogates for heart disease came from the Framingham study, which was basically this federally funded multi-decade study that just documented these very interesting correlations between um, uh, high blood pressure and high cholesterol and heart disease mortality. And so it basically generated some hypotheses, which then a bunch of subsequent studies by Veterans Affairs um researchers and others kind of documented that those were actually causal pathways. And so those were kind of developed into what are generally perceived as kind of non-controversial surrogate endpoints. But the problem is that we don't think of this as a technology that we could invest in getting more of. But I would love to change our thinking so we can think of it that way. How can we invest in discovering and validating more surrogate endpoints? So I'm not in favor. I think no one's in favor of using bad surrogate endpoints to have shorter trials. But if we don't even have the conversation about how much is it worth Um, using good surrogates when we have them, then we don't really think about what kinds of costs and investment would be justified in trying to discover and validate new ones. So I'm I'm kind of surprised there's such resistance to that for using circuit endpoints or surrogates, because, you know, if you think about other drugs or other medical conditions, you know, death is, we all agree death is a bad thing. So, you know, for most of the interventions that we we kind of think of, you know, like heart, heartburn and digestive problems and a whole number yeah. of other things. It's about, you know, extreme patient discomfort and pain, remission of different conditions. So those could be outcomes you could look certainly look at. You'd think they'd be things that would not be so controversial to take into account when you determined whether or not a treatment was beneficial or not. Um, and maybe is this, is yeah. this the culture of cancer trials as different than it is for other medical interventions because death is um, so common yeah i mean one so one recent example that's not about cancer is for alzheimer's so there's been a lot of discussion of should you be able to use scans that your brain activity is changing as an outcome in alzheimer drug trials and that's a particularly important case because if you think, you know, you might administer a drug to someone when they're 30 and hope it's going to prevent Alzheimer's when they're 80, this is a case where long trials are definitely something that we think might be, you know, a concern. 
there's been just a lot of um, very heated discussion about the validity of those brain scan measures as a valid outcome. Another example is for um, something that you could call the cervical cancer vaccine, or you could call the HPV vaccine. But there's a vaccine that prevents HPV, which is a risk factor for cervical cancer. And the narrative history that you can um, kind of read about is that as soon as regulators said that they would be willing to accept HPV incidence as, a, as an endpoint for cervical cancer vaccines, that's when they started doing all of their investment. And we got a, a quite good, quite high quality vaccine. Um, but then, you know, you can see these patient groups saying, well, we don't even know that this prevents cancer. Like, why would I give that to my child? You know, and so it's just something where there's a lot of pushback from kind of different types of patient groups. Um, and like I said, it doesn't help that absolutely there are some cases where we've seen firms advocate to use circuit endpoints that actually, you know, there wasn't good evidence. So, you know, one example is for prostate cancer men, one screening test that is, exists for prostate cancer is a prostate-specific antigen, the PSA test, which measures the level of prostate cancer in your blood. It turns out my read is that if a drug reduces your PSA level in your blood, that's not very predictive of anything about your health leader. And so when firms have kind of said, well, can't we use this? Then like that also doesn't help with kind of the, like, let's all make sure we're only proposing, you know, things that have a good evidence base around them. But I think there's a, a lot of political economy factors going on that I don't, I don't want to pretend to understand, but I do feel like it's sort of an orphaned area um, because it's just a lot of concerns about conflict of interest, some of them quite legitimate. Um, so maybe I'll, I mean, it's a really nice talk. I mean, I, I'll take the uh, conversation maybe back to the patent system a bit. Sure. So yeah. should there be, um, so since we talk about, you know, this uh, difference in terms of like long clinical trials and then the length of the patent, um, I don't know if there should be a specific treatment for medicine or, you know, across like heterogeneity <laughs> across industries. I, I don't know if that would even yeah. distort the system even, <laughs> even more. But do you think that, you know, there should be maybe a specific treatment for medical drugs or maybe in general, we can also talk about, you know, um, whether a patent system incentivizes right now further developments or further research? Um, and do we see that, you know, these property rights on innovations um, hinder sub subsequent innovation? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of papers that are just looked at in which industries are patents important. And, you know, one of the main headline facts that comes out of those surveys are chemical and pharmaceutical and kind of uh, things in the health space seem to be very reliant on patents and say that they're really important for their incentives to innovate and other things. And that most other industries, they're kind of reported to be not very important. And so... What's ironic is because the health industry is so large and they're quite good at lobbying, our patent policy ends up largely being shaped you know, by these debates between, you know, pharmaceutical firms saying how important patents are and like a lot of other firms and other industries saying, you know, the patent system isn't well designed mm -hmm. for us. <laughs> and so it does kind of feel like, well, why are we all under one roof? And my lawyer friends tell me that we would have to like leave the World Trade Organization if we had industry specific patents, because that's like not consistent with international treaties or whatever. So there's kind of a logistical question of like, could you have separate patent systems? And I want to be respectful. I'm not a lawyer, you know, but my understanding is that that's kind of hard. One thing that I think is very interesting and kind of underappreciated is that, at least in Europe and the US, we have a very flexible system for essentially replicating the incentives in the patent system that's provided directly by the regulators. So the regulators provide these things called exclusivity periods, which are basically like a much better version of patents in the sense that they're, they can be tailored and designed and they're much more flexible and they can just be kind of appropriately sized to the value of the problem. So for example, like patents, you know, have some what's called breadth. So how many competitor products are going to be excluded? And they have some length, you know, for how many years do you get an exclusive right? I know the US context better, but for different areas where the, the Food and Drug Administration in the US wanted to provide more incentives, they would design these exclusivity periods that would be awarded to new drugs differently. So sometimes it would be quite narrow, like we're not going to approve a generic drug for a longer number of years. So it's just a pretty narrow extension of your patent. Sometimes they're quite broad. They're saying we're not going to approve any other drugs for this disease for some period of time because we think that you deserve kind of a broader protection. And so um, I 
it just feels so natural to kind of shift the emphasis of how we're incentivizing drugs to these discussions around exclusivity, where we have a lot of flexibility to try to match the private incentives that we're providing to firms with the social value of the technologies that we're trying to do. And to kind of de-emphasize the patent system where tailoring the patent system to what's best for pharmaceuticals can actually, I think, probably do a lot of harm on other industries. And so how that decoupling would happen politically, like I have no idea, but it just, it feels to me like there's a real opportunity that that could happen in some, you know, politically feasible way that actually firms would prefer, society would prefer, you know, that it's not kind of a crazy idea that obviously someone is very, is very much against. Sorry, can I just yeah. button and ask, it's a fascinating thought. And I, I'd, um, you know, I I thought a little bit about this exclusivity issue. I guess is is one issue the commitment problem. Like, it, could the FDA commit to do this in a, in a credible way? Have have they done that in the past? Because it seems like such a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the in the U.S., they have a quite a good track record of these, and like they're seen as like uh, like firms seem to like them. They seem to trust them. It's kind of been a system that's been in place for a while. That's my sense of the EU ones also, and so with the European Medical Association. But basically, the FDA is a reputation that like the patent system kind of works because people trust that you know uh, the system is going to work well. And so the whole idea that firms are willing to make this like long term investment in clinical trials under the promise that you know, the process of getting approval at the last stage from the regulator is going to be somewhat a predictable process. You know, I think it's within a system of trust in general, but for these um, exclusivity periods in particular, the track record, I think, is quite good, and they've been around for a while. And, but they've just been used in these very targeted cases, like, we want more antibiotics, or we're concerned about orphan drugs. But actually, like, at a high level, we're concerned that, like, firms are kind of making a lot of money off of drugs that might not be that socially valuable, and that there's lots of socially valuable drugs that don't have any incentives. And so who is the social planner that you want to put in charge of, you know, designing that alignment? You know, let me nominate John. But, you know, it's just like, you know, I think we could do a much better job of kind of thinking through that in a more tailored way that could just be much more broadly used. So great idea. And we can also maybe talk about um, the policy implications of your research, because we talked about a lot of politics. I was going to actually ask you something about that. Maybe we can start going into the policy implications of your research. Uh, Like, where are we failing? Um, And basically, uh, like, what are the main policy suggestions that you had, um, you know, for policymakers uh, based on your research? And even after, I want to ask this now. (laughs) So even after, let's say, like, you propose a policy, have you ever encountered a resistance, specific resistance, like from the policymakers, just because, you know, it may not be uh, in their interests to apply um, your policy suggestion, for instance? Yeah, so, um, you know, the... it's interesting too. I, I I'm either too impatient or productively impatient. But so I'm I'm very interested in focusing on policy in cases where it feels like there's a, a like a tractable opening that like there's a problem. I've convinced myself it's very important. I kind of see what a potential solution is, and it doesn't seem like there's something obviously in the way, of, like politically, that you know would make this so that it's a completely hopeless uphill battle to kind of try to go in that direction. And so there's. Um, you know, the, the one that I've pushed most is this idea of thinking about what would it look like to just invest in technologies that would let us have these shorter clinical trials. And um, like I said, that's generated a lot of hate mail from doctors who kind of, you know, or like, you know, I remember the first time I was a junior faculty and I presented my research on this at the National Institutes of Health in the United States in a somewhat public setting. So there were other people there, not just NIH employees. And one of the non-NIH employees interrupted me about two minutes into my talk to ask, like, who was funding my research and was I industry funded? And that's just, that's the whole atmosphere is that the assumption is I couldn't be just uh, on a priori grounds arguing that something that is good for industry is also good for society, unless I'm getting paid by industry to say that. And so it was made very clear to me early in my career that uh, that line meant a lot for my credibility to kind of work in this space. So like I've never taken any money from industry and I've tried to even avoid like kind of gray areas about like data sharing, which has value to me, you know what I mean? But of course I'm concerned about conflict of interest and that's like a real thing, but it just seems like there, it also shouldn't be off the table to discuss things that are good for both firms and society. Right. And so I'm, I'm worried that actually a lot of people kind of, 
see that there's not progress on some of these problems and infer that it's too hard politically or, you know, there's some scientific reason why it's not feasible when in fact just nobody's working on it. Like nobody, and partly nobody's working on it because very few people, like I said, kind of have legitimacy that like they like know enough to understand the problem, but aren't immediately labeled as having a conflict of interest. For me, that series of discussions has been very informative in kind of how I think about, you know, like what is the long-term plan to kind of try to build interest in ideas that are good, but that kind of need to be very much handled with care on who do you bring into the discussion and how. (laughs) This is an old paper. It's from 2015. It's still my favorite paper to talk with people about because like different um, parts of the ecosystem that I think need to understand why this would be valuable kind of over time kind of have gotten more interested in it. So like last year, um, Derek Thompson um, wrote like a great piece in The Atlantic where he was kind of talking about this. And I think, you know, a lot of people that are kind of coming at concerns about um, stagnation and kind of growth and kind of how could we think about investing in technologies to kind of, you know, make uh, um, economic growth work better. You know, they're kind of coming back to a time when there's an opportunity to bring up these kinds of ideas and kind of articulate them for like thoughtful people that maybe aren't specialists in a given area, but to kind of have them on the menu of things that should be um, discussed whenever the time is kind of appropriate. And so I don't know if that's exactly kind of uh, answering your question, but it's just to say that like as, as basic researchers, I think our, our, our goal should be to identify kind of facts that we think are true and um, ideas that we think would improve welfare. And then the question of like, when and how did those get translated into policies? You know, partly it's waiting for the right opportunity and partly it's just kind of understanding the landscape well enough to recognize opportunities when they come up. Because, you know, if basic researchers aren't really engaged enough to even pay attention, we're going to miss the windows of opportunity when they do become available to kind of get those ideas out there in the hands of people that could do something about them. So I'm, I, I, can't, I can't resist uh, mentioning the the paper Heidi and I have together in the Journal of Economic Perspectives was uh, and with Nick Bloom uh, from Stanford as a, uh, an overview of innovation policies. And, you know, my role was to kind of basically dumb Heidi down as much as, as, much as I could and try and, uh, you know, we, we discussed the whole range of innovation policies and try to summarize it in a single table, which we christened the light bulb table, which is trying to look at the evidence and score it on cost-benefit analysis and some political feasibility. And um, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that's a kind of a useful thing to do. But I think one of the differences that, you know, both Nick and I were quite high level in the kinds of recommendations for policies. And one of the um, strengths of what Heidi does is like really try to focus on you know much more practical solutions and concrete solutions than, than we do. And you know, educated me a lot of the nuances of you know thinking about intellectual property protection. And you know, you can't you can't necessarily simplify some of the policies very much. I, I wonder at this point, though, Heidi, maybe you should do you want to talk a bit about the Institute for Progress and and the work that you're you're doing there, which is very much yeah. in that policy space that you mentioned, trying to thread the needle between something going to improve overall welfare and is politically feasible? Sure. Yeah. So um, I have long wanted to see kind of a think tank working in innovation policy. And you know, there are definitely some that work on kind of pretty specific issues, but largely kind of in the same way we were talking about with, with the drug trials example and kind of conflict of interest concerns around pharmaceuticals. Like the initiatives that happen at a lot of think tanks happen because industry makes grants to kind of fund particular initiatives on those areas. So it's not that a given think tank was kind of looking at the landscape and saying, what are the highest impact opportunities that you know could benefit from more time and attention in that space? But a year ago, I met Alex Tapp and Caleb Watney, who were um, these two uh, young guys who were starting a new think tank. And their model was to, they'd worked at various think tanks in DC and I think had a similar jaded kind of view that what I did, which is, you know, this like, not everybody is working on the problems that are most important. They're working on the problems that other people are kind of, you know, it's in their interest to have kind of more work on those topics. And so they, they were kind of starting off by saying, we're interested in science technological progress because we think that's the source of, you know, improvements in growth and well-being. And let's choose to focus our work on the topics where we think that these are just really important problems. We have ideas on how to solve them. And we think that it's um, kind of politically tractable to think that you're going to make progress. So, and that sounds so obvious. Let's work on important problems. But that's really just not, that's not what anybody else was doing. So, you know, how should we fund basic scientific research? Like, you know, uh, that's just something that is so fundamental. And, you know, we spend 
billions and billions of dollars. But if you look at kind of what happens in the policy space around funding basic science, you basically have some people that are advocating that like the NIH and the NSF should have more money in the US. And you have people throwing bombs at the science agencies saying, why did you fund this study? It's so silly. Or like, why are you funding stuff on climate change? Because like, I don't think climate change is real. And so that's the political discourse is, you know, either advocacy or you know, criticism of specific grants that like people disagree with, um, as opposed to just looking at the agencies from kind of almost like a engineering perspective and saying like, what's working well and not well, and how can we improve the productivity of like each dollar that gets spent? And just looking for kind of some of these low hanging fruits on like um, ideas of how you could make existing budgets go further. And then if you get that, you know, you convince yourself, you know, which I haven't talked about one of John's papers on this, that like the social returns to research are much higher than the private returns. And actually there is still a gap. You might also end up in the case where you're advocating for more money, but we could also get a lot of gains just from reallocating the current system around kind of using the best mechanisms to fund existing science. One example that I often talk about is... um, Different agencies, at least in the U.S., differ in how quickly they can give out money. And so the National Science Foundation, it turns out, has these mechanisms where they can give out grants within two weeks through two of their grant programs. So um, during COVID, that was invaluable because they were shoveling money out the door to researchers in two weeks. There's a young researcher, Maxwell Tabarrok, who basically just did a really nice kind of decomposition of NSF and NIH funding during COVID and showing that indeed, consistent with this grant mechanism, the NSF is able to get out money in two weeks. And the fastest the NIH was, was able to get it out was much slower. And if you you could say, well, oh, the NIH is just slow and bureaucratic, but actually Congress has never afforded the NIH the opportunity to bypass external peer review in the same way that they do for NSF. So at NSF, um, they have flexibility to say, this is a program that we're not going to go out for external peer review. Applications come in, our staff make decisions, we send out money. And so it's a constraint on the NIH. Congress doesn't let them do that. You know, So let's stop complaining that the NIH is slow. And instead, like, let's say, well, maybe we should ask Congress to give NIH the same flexibility that they've given the NSF so that they can also have a short turn on grants during a crisis. But, you know, it's just like if nobody's even doing the legwork to understand, you know, what's going on, then we just get people complaining all the time about stuff that's not even under the agency's control. And so, you know, I think doing this work to understand, like, where where are the bottlenecks? Who is in charge of making decisions over those bottlenecks? And, like, what can we do to try to make a real difference? It's just something that amazingly, uh, there wasn't a lot going on in that before the super progress kind of came in and started to do that. And so it's just been an incredibly rewarding experience for me to learn from these two guys, Alex Hepp and Kate Watney, that are heading this think tank, because I feel like um, they're very much kind of um, my peers. Like we kind of have a very similar sense of kind of what would really make progress on um, making the world a better place, you know, for lack of a, lack of a, you know, terser way of saying that. But um, it's just, it's been really rewarding for me. And so I actually took um, two years uh, of leave away from academia to kind of do more full-time work uh, working with them. And then I'll be coming back to, to teach um, starting not this year, but next year. And it's just been incredibly rewarding and just a really eye-opening experience for me to see um, Mm -hmm. kind of like the potential for that kind of work to really make a difference. So that's beautiful. And I think seeing the practical side, like um, working on those projects and um, um, at the Institute, I think it's, it's really great. Maybe we can switch to the questions, which I call cheesy questions (laughs) right now. Some of those questions that I prepared, I think I hear those complaints a lot from my like uh, friends, like who are PhD students or postdocs, or young academics, basically. So I want to ask this question to both uh, to you, John, and then <laughs> Heidi. So one is that, I mean, in a team project, you know, there is a pre-doc sometimes, you know, there's a, a PhD student and a postdoc and and other co-authors, et cetera. So there might sometimes be problems, you know, uh, within a team. And, you know, if, if let's say someone is, I don't know the category, I mean, you can specify it if you ever had that situation before, but, you know, if someone was free riding or shirking or, you know, if there was a kind of a disagreement or a kind of a clash between co-authors like how do you solve these problems is there a strategy that you specifically follow to make a project run more efficiently 
Yes. So let me just first say that I have been the shirker, you know, in several situations. And so, you know, just to give, <laughs> just to give two examples of why really? I think this, whoever you are, you know, you've, you've been this person. So, you know, I remember when, once it was easy to plan in advance. So, you know, when I knew that I was expecting a, a baby or a second baby, you know, you make a plan with your co-authors, right? I'm going to be offline for a large number of months and we need a plan because I'm not going to be responding to any emails. And I just remember uh, I was very, I, I was very grateful. I was working on a, a project with Pat Klein from Berkeley and he was just so understanding. He's like, I am not going to email you. I will take care of everything. And whenever you're back at work, you can just let me know. And so, you know, there's that nice. shirking, which is just being on the same page with everybody about what the expectations are. And there's some things like pregnancy when you have nine months of notice and you can make a plan in advance. There's sometimes, of course, that you don't have nine months of notice. So, you know, when I when I ended up meeting the um, Alec and Caleb from the Institute for Progress, like I, I saw a real opportunity to kind of go do work immediately in DC. And in a very short turnaround time, it was like a week, I kind of found some funding so I could take leave. And I kind of decided that I really wanted to focus on that full time. And so in incredibly flaky fashion, I emailed all my co-authors and I'm just like, I'm sorry, like I, I, I have this thing I really want to try doing and I basically can't work on our joint projects, you know, until I'm back. And mm-hmm. um, uh, they, were, they were like, what are you talking about? You know, what's going on? You know? And so, um, and there was no news. And, and I mean, I felt terrible. Like I, I've been so happy this year, except for I feel terrible that I just completely flaked out on basically all of my co-authors. But like, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, I still, you know, feel like I need to catch up with them one-on-one, uh, you know, to make sure everybody's feeling okay. But, you know, you just feel like, of course, things change. And, you know, but again, what I tried to do is to be clearer on here, I'm going to try to be back in a year. And then of course I had to say, I'm going to be back in two years instead of one year. I, I just can't do anything. So don't wait on me. We need to make a plan for our project that's going to kind of move around in a way that respects everybody else's plans. And I think where problems come up is usually mismatched expectations. Um, you know, I'll get back to you this week and I don't get back to you this week. And so everybody's kind of waiting and, you know, and I think being honest with yourself about when you're going to have time and bandwidth to focus on things, being respectful of other people's time constraints. Mm-hmm. So people's tenure clocks or people's PhD dissertation timelines or kind of like some presentation that someone has that's like really important. So I always try to kind of center on putting people's um, professional kind of goals and timelines kind of front and center. But then also, honestly, at a project selection level, I, and I don't write as many papers as John, this is maybe one reason why, but uh, I only choose to do projects that I feel like I'm I'm interested enough in the project that I would write it by myself if nobody else kind of did anything. Mm. And so I enjoy co-authoring with people because I get more feedback on my ideas. But I feel like if I go in with that mindset, I don't feel better if someone ends up not doing a, a certain share of the work because it's a project that I see as sufficiently important that I'd be like willing to do it by myself. I, I think setting common expectations is really helpful. Unexpected things do come up. You need to apologize and and just make a plan and try to be realistic with people on when you're going to be back. Um, and then just trying to be respectful of especially younger people's external uh, constraints and kind of career timing and incentives and trying to prioritize around that when I can. Yeah, I think that would also be a nice recommendation for young academics too, maybe like if you're interested in that topic, I mean, if you can't write it by yourself, for instance, if you're not that interested, it might be really hard to work in the team because then you're going to push yourself and it, and a project doesn't last for like, I don't know, three months or four months, it takes years. So it's going to yes. be problematic at some point. How about you, John? Have you ever, like, what would you recommend or um, have you ever had such had such issues? <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, issues. This issues do these are you know issues like they all rise the whole time. And I think you know, as as you said, Veda, one of the phenomena that we've seen throughout science is the kind of size of the team is getting bigger. So more and more co-authors on papers, more 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 co co inventors on patents. So as the team size gets better, it gets harder. So if it's just if you're just working with yourself, you're kind of arguing with yourself. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> yeah. as the team size gets bigger, it's much more, you know, of a managerial issue. And, you know, management is not easy, as <laughs> as uh, as we know. So, yeah. you know, all, all the advice Heidi gave us was, was extremely sensible. So, you know, I, I, I found that, you know, basic rules are very useful. So, you know, you want to set up a thing so you have regular meetings. So if you've got a team of a reasonable size, you have to, you know, check in regularly over certain points i know at the early stage of my career you know you could just say oh we'll just we'll only meet when we need to meet but 
I think that becomes a harder thing to do when people are working in bigger teams with more portfolios. You actually need a kind of managerial structure where you actually have regular meetings in. Ideally, you'd have, you know, what the follow-ups are going to be afterwards, you know, what, what the action points are. Um, it's a relationship. So, you know, it, it is a very, you know, you're very, it's a very personal thing when you do research, you're very invested in it. So it is very much about managing a personal relationship with people as well. So you have to um, take into account that people, ha- you know, may not be hearing the same things that you think that you're saying. So you have to be, very, you have to be very careful about trying to do that. Um, and it, you know, I think that one thing Heidi said in particular is that you have to realize that people have different interests. So especially for junior people coming up for tenure, it's very important that some output is produced. So once you've got, once you're older, you've got tenure. Yes, you still want to get a good paper, a good publication, but there's less of that time pressure for you. So having to think about the best way to manage that is is, is very important. I mean, and ultimately, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a selection. So people that you don't get on with, you know, I guess the, what, one difference between a kind of, you know, a kind of marriage type of relationship and a, and a research relationship is a very polygamous and promiscuous <laughs> society that uh, we live in research. So you can actually, you know, if things don't work out, you know, you can start a new relationship with, with, with somebody else. And that's that's kind of fine. And so you do find that, you know, typically analogy. you end up with working with, the people you get on well with, and you can understand, you tend to work with more than than, than other people. But it, it is it is it is very hard, and I think we don't get much training in in how to do that. Actually, it's kind of learning by doing. Um, and I think that there is lots of arguments that we need to kind of professionalize the way we do this a lot more. Especially now, a typical empirical research project involves you know quite a quite a big uh, group, quite a big team. So. You know, maybe we should have an MBR research <laughs> management uh, uh, thing. In fact, you know, that Sorry. is something we're working on from a research point of view as well. Yeah. 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 Just to follow up on one thing that John said, uh, I remember when I was a junior faculty, one of my senior colleagues gave me the advice that, you know, if if you're not working well with someone, you know, it can seem like, oh, this is just a bad situation. But it's actually like you should think of it as a 30 minute conversation now to essentially break up is saving you like five years of being frustrated with this situation. And sometimes it's just you should just end that because you've you've learned that you don't work well together and it can be for <laughs> silly reasons or substantive reasons but you know it's like at some point you know you need you need to co-write words that are going to represent your views and this other person's views and if you kind of learn that that's not going to converge in finite time like it's not in anybody's interest to you know draw that process out so yeah so you work on a lot of projects at the same time right so you not only work on one project you know in a week but you have many multiple projects so do you like how do you determine your time um like allocation how do you arrange your time allocation for multiple projects like i don't know like one day this project the other day this project or one hour this project i mean do you do this like by you know daily or weekly uh, any hints on time management like do you have such a strategy like this works better for me and i tried these methods and this is the best or something like that so um, I'm pretty sure everyone feels terrible about their time management. <laughs> so you can like have therapy it's sessions where people, <laughs> where people share, you know, why they feel terrible about their time management. So, um, you know, I, I find it helpful to basically have a system where like once a quarter I try to prioritize, you know, three things that are most important for me to be working on and making progress on that quarter. Um, on a weekly basis, I try to say, like, do I kind of understand for each of those three things kind of what the next steps are? And then I try to make time during the week to make some progress on those things. And at the end of the week, if I didn't spend any time on any of those three things, I take a moment to feel guilty because, you know, it's just, yeah, your whole week can be meetings and kind of like trying to be helpful with, you know, short-term things that come up or like, you know, especially when you're teaching, you know, you're having more office hours with students that kind of need something. And you can get to the end of the week and say, I didn't spend any time on the three things that I had told myself at the beginning of the week were my priorities. And, you know, on one hand, it's just a week, it doesn't matter. But I think what can happen to people is weeks can go by where you're never spending time on kind of the things that you ex ante decided were kind of most important to you. And that's where you kind of realize that you need to somehow account for your time in a different way. And whether that's kind of like, you know, a lot of people 
like the method of like, I'm going to not schedule meetings for kind of certain times so that those are kind of my focused work times that like never has particularly worked for me, but it seems to work for everybody else. Um, but, um, you know, and then if you get to the end of the quarter and you really didn't make a lot of progress on the things you said were priorities, like that's another opportunity to kind of reflect and say, maybe I need to be kind of doing a better job of prioritizing the things that are of my long-term interest. So I think being realistic about, you know, I'm not going to make progress on 10 projects substantively, you know, um, what can I parallel process? So can I get some data entered at the same time that I'm doing something else so that, you know, when next quarter comes up, I will have that data entered and ready for me to make progress on something else. But then, you know, kind of trying to strike a balance between taking time to feel guilty when I'm, you know, have these scheduled moments to say, am I spending time in the way that I wanted to spend time, but also, you know, not feeling terrible about it, you know, for two days, you know, take five minutes and feel bad and then go back to work, you know. Um, okay. So then you can limit your guilt to five minutes. <laughs> limit your guilt. Limit your guilt. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good yeah. time management actually. So I was going to, um, so, so then since you explained, you know, um, a bit, so maybe I should ask that question too. I mean, we tend to work um, at the weekends as well. So do you have a policy like, I can't, I'm, I'm not going to work after 5 p.m. I'm going to uh, be with myself, with my family, and then I'm not going to work after 5 p.m. Or at the weekends, do you have a policy like no work at the weekends? Or is it like, well, if I have work, I'll do it. And then like, do you, how do you arrange that? Like, do you have a strict policy? Yeah. I, one thing I just always want to say is like, I, I think we're so lucky as researchers, not just as academics, like some other researchers also have this flexibility in other settings, um, to largely be able to decide on what your like work non-work trade-off is. And so, you know, my preferences are not meant to be prescriptive for other people. So, you know, I love my work. I just, I get, I find it so rewarding and I feel like it's genuinely helping people that I think, you know, the world is a better place when I do more work. And so I personally have like, you know, a lot of just intrinsic motivation. It's not like I'm at work because I want to get another publication out, right? I'm at work because I want to help the person that I'm meeting with, you know, after we finish this podcast, you know, design something that's going to like make society, you know, work better. And so I think how you think about your work hours differs a lot based on how intrinsically rewarding you find your work. And so, you know, and it also varies a lot by your life and what's going on in your life. So for a long time, I was like incredibly religious about sleep. And so I was like sleeping like really like a great number of hours every night. And I would go to the graduate students every year and I would preach to them about how like sleep is so important. And Esther Duflo, my, my and John's colleague from MIT, would kind of come and say, research is like a marathon, not a sprint. And you like need to take care of your body. And then we had kids and my sleep just like totally went out the window. And so like, <laughs> I had to like stop doing that talk to the graduate students because I'm like, I'm not sleeping. Like, you know, I can't in good faith go tell them that they're supposed to be sleeping. And so, oh, you yeah. know, it's just, and and now what I prioritize is not my sleep, but time with our kids. And, you know, and that's something where, you know, I'm, I work when I'm not with our kids. And, you know, so like that for me means that I'm often working like really late, but that's because I prioritize trying to have dinner with them every night, kind of a regular schedule, right? And so you get to set your priorities of what's important for you. It's not important for me to have my weekends off. It's important for me to spend time regularly with my kids so that they know that I'm there for them. Mm -hmm. And it's important for me to spend time on the work that I find so rewarding. Um, but anyway, it's just to say that um, I think we're just really lucky to be in a position where you have a lot of flexibility to decide what's important to you and how you structure your life around that um i do encourage sleep for people that don't have kids that's or you know the way, the way, yeah. the way i try to describe it is that um you know you know we have a hobby of my hobby which is research and economics and uh, people pay me for doing my hobby <laughs> that's a pretty oh, that's, that's a pretty good, good. <laughs> that's a pretty uh that's a pretty good outcome really um Right. You know, they could pay me more, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> do you have do you have such, to get on with. Do you have such a policy, John? Like no work at the weekends, only family or or <laughs> I mean you said it's it's your hobby. <laughs> oh, that's a good joke, isn't it? Yeah. No, well yeah, yeah, there is there is work at the weekends. But you know, it's it's like um I mean I I, I normally try and I, I, I have a little routine. I like I like to, you know have uh, exercise in the morning and do, you know, I, I, sw I try to swim every day. I do some physio, you know, walk the dog, see my daughter. So I, I kind of, that that's my morning routine. So I don't, I, you know, I 
like to do that kind of every day unless I, I need to then I have an evening routine where I get home and have dinner with the family and try to keep to that as my time but kind of outside that it's kind of more or less anything goes um, I'd <laughs> oh, say the main it. thing I try and do is run regressions every week I, I feel <laughs> if I have not run a regression or done some data analysis in a week I, I feel that's a waste because I, <laughs> I nothing there's nothing more that I like to do than play around with the data set so I, uh, if, if I've spent the week not doing, you know, you know, just doing, you know, um, administrative work or teaching or even writing and not actually playing around with data, I kind of feel like I've missed out. So <laughs> that's the one I do try and make sure I, I, I do. I do that. I see. <laughs> it's very beautiful. Thank you very much, Heidi, for being our guest and for uh, for joining us today. I think it was a fascinating conversation. It was a very fun conversation. Um, and I hope our listeners also enjoyed the talk. So if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at lscpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're a good social media user and would like to get in touch with us, you can uh, tweet us at Twitter. Or now it's called X, I think. I don't know if I'll ever switch to. <laughs> I don't know or if anyone threads. will ever. We do threads. <laughs> threads, yeah. I mean, because it, it was nice. I mean, the logo and the name. But anyways, um, and have a good day, everybody. See you in the next episode. Bye. Thanks, Heidi.